one thing with anger is why most people don't succeed is because they don't get angry enough. They don't get frustrated with where they're at. And in emotional intelligence, the, the third pillar of emotional intelligence is motivation. And the unfortunate part about living in the UK or Australia or America is our middle class is so big. And the majority of people can live a very nice life without having to try very hard whatsoever. So the comfort zone is so big that people, they go, you know what, I don't really like my job, but I don't hate it. So what happens is they get stuck in this rut and it's still good enough and they get rewarded for underperformance. So I say before uh, people start to really move out of that comfort zone, they've got to get really frustrated. They got really angry about not hitting their goals. Welcome to the Business Mastermind Podcast with business strategist, speaker and author, Gavin Preston. Tap into this meeting of minds between everyday business people on their journey to master business growth. Join them as they share strategies, insights and shortcuts to help you survive and thrive in business and life as you scale your business and achieve a bigger impact. Hi, Gavin here. Welcome to Business Mastermind Podcast and it's episode 86. Today, we're talking with Daniel Tolson. Based in Taiwan, originally from Australia, he shares with us the four D's for success, desire, decision, determination, and discipline. And Daniel is an expert in emotional intelligence, and he shows that actually how we can channel some of our emotions for good. For example, uh, aggression and anger. There'll be a few people, (laughs) to say the least at the moment, with the coronavirus being frustrated or even angry what's happening to them, their families, and um, to the business world and economy around them. And Daniel shares what we can take our emotions, such as frustration and anger, and channel that in a positive way. So, yeah, a positive interview around desire, decision, determination, and discipline with Daniel Tolson. Hi, and welcome to the Business Mastermind podcast. Today, I've got the great pleasure, transatlantic, well, across the other side of the world, say transatlantic, transpacific, uh, across to Taiwan to speak to Daniel Tolson. Daniel, good morning. Hello. Gavin, good morning. Thank you for having me here. It's a true pleasure. So, Daniel, tell everybody about your area of expertise. And then once you've sort of talked about the area that we're going to talk about uh, in terms of emotional intelligence, can you just share with us a bit about your background, please? Well, thank you for having me here. Um, My speciality is emotional intelligence. And over the past decade, I've worked with more than four and a half thousand business people to help them increase their sales and also their emotional intelligence. And in the past three years alone, I've delivered more than 1,350 insights into emotional intelligence. And these case studies have been with startup businesses all the way up to publicly listed companies worth about 35 billion, 35 billion US dollars. Right. So I have the pleasure of working with people on all levels. Fantastic. And that's, uh, that's my area of specialization, which I'm very passionate about. But you've had a very interesting entrepreneurial career, starting in in a family business, you know, from from an early age. So, do you want to just do you want to take us through your a uh, little bit about your career background? Well, uh, my my mum and dad were in porn, and uh, they had a pawn shop. Yep. So, my brother and I we started at a young age, and we were learning to trade. And in the pawnbroking days, when we started in the early nineties. All the goods that we would bring into our shop were purchased from auctions. Okay. So from an early age, my brother and out the my brother and I were trading, buying and selling secondhand goods, learning to negotiate, finding the bargains, finding margins, 
reselling, pricing, adjusting, marketing. And Woody had been involved in the family business for 17 years. And we must have sold at least one of everything that's ever been available through that business. And in the morning, you might be lending money. In the afternoon, you're probably trading uh, gold and silver and precious gems and, and everything in between. So we got really good at trading. Okay. And whilst we were trading in the secondhand goods, we were money lending, which was incredible. And then my brother and I were also Australian champion athletes. So we would work hard, would train hard, and we realized that we could turn ourselves into a business. Yep. So we started a company called Liquid Militia, and we ended up having our clothing goods manufactured in China, uh, in factories we're importing, and then we had distribution network of more than 50 retail outlets across Australia. Fantastic. And what was we your create, sport? The sport was wakeboarding, Amazing. which was very yeah. popular yeah. there in the UK yeah, yeah, as well. But yeah. Predominantly around, you know, Thorpe Park, yeah. uh, where I used to work yeah. back in the early two thousands. Fantastic. So, um, so from from your clothing business, where did your career move then? So, from the clothing business, we started to produce videos, and this was in the very early days of the internet. Um, we didn't have Facebook at that stage. We had MySpace. Yes. So we were creating videos. Our video camera uh, in the early. 2000s or yeah, early 2000s, I think that video cost us, camera cost us $6,000 back yeah. then. And that's probably worth about 20 grand now. Yeah, yeah. And there was no drones. And we were lucky that my uncle owned a helicopter. Really? So we would ring my uncle and say, <laughs> going wakeboarding, we want to film. Can you take the doors off the chopper? So he <laughs> would take the doors off the chopper Amazing. and we would hang outside of the chopper whilst we were filming. Amazing. Now, all of that today is done by a drone that's worth $600. Yeah. But we'll hang outside helicopters. So when people look at our videos today and they see the chopper and where we're filming from that's hovering, you know, just 10 foot above the rider, they're freaking out yeah. because you just don't see that anymore. Yeah, yeah. So we ended up selling thousands of these videos. Uh, we would do uh, entertainment and help entertainment companies uh, with, you know, wakeboarding, and we would do demonstrations in front of up to 10,000 people. Amazing. So it was perfect. We were the brand. We were the face. Yeah. We were creating our own marketing material. The internet was starting to wake up. Uh, we were doing videos on on MySpace, which just wasn't heard of. Yeah. We created a cult following. And our marketing budget was everything that we created. Okay. So we were known globally. I, I was traveling in uh, in Brunei, of all places, a very rich oil country in the middle of Asia. And I was walking through this village, and it's called the Floating Village. And this guy comes out of his house. He looks at me, and he said, I just saw you on television. Mad. I said, Amazing. <laughs> I looked at my girlfriend, and I said, he's pulling my leg. She said, well, go in and have a look. And he took me into his house and wakeboarding was on television. Yeah. Um, it wasn't me that he saw. It was my brother. Wow. And he looks very similar to me. Yeah. And he spotted me in this Asian country in the middle of the world. Amazing. Amazing. So that was really cool. And then uh, I ended up working with Emirates Airline and I co-led a team of 17,000 cabin crew. And I used to get uh, fans of our brand come onto the aircraft and they'd say, yo, Danny Danger. It's <laughs> 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 called me Daniel Danger when I was wakeboarding. And I'd look around and there'd be people on the aircraft wearing the brand that I'd started. Oh, amazing. And they'd call me Danny Danger, would stop. And, you know, it's 40,000 feet in the world. I'm living in the Middle East. Yeah, yeah. And these people still remembered us. Uh, wow. I still get people 
you know, 15 years. Uh, I see people wearing product that we created 15 years ago. They connect on Facebook and they say, these shorts that I bought for $60 are still in mint condition. Wow. Wow. And so we still connected with our clients. Um, You know, we we started that in the early 2000s. Fantastic. And we still connect with them today. Great. so, so now, um, living in Taiwan, you run a training, speaking, coaching business, and your area of speciality uh, is emotional intelligence. Yeah, um, emotional intelligence is key for business success. Uh, 75% of the world's Fortune 500s are actually investing in emotional intelligence programs. Right. And what they're realizing is that the people with the highest level of emotional intelligence are the most effective in their roles. So there's significant return on investment for companies if you're working on emotional intelligence. And being a person who grew up with significant learning disabilities when I was young, when I found emotional intelligence, I actually felt really smart for the first time in my life because this form of intelligence is not measured at school. Sure. At school, they're worried about your IQ. Yeah, yeah. And IQ is set by age 15 and and you've got what you've got for your whole life. Mm. But emotional intelligence, it's fluid and it's measured differently. And it's your ability to get along with people. It's your ability to communicate and it's the ability to understand and improve yourself. And this type of intelligence is so important for people who really didn't succeed or who never felt smart at school. And and what do you see in terms of applications in the world of business then of being, uh, you know, emotionally connected, emotionally intelligent? The the first one is if we're talking about selling, no sales are possible without empathy. Mm. And empathy is your ability to read the other person's emotional makeup. It's the ability to look at your prospect and to be able to walk a mile in their shoes. Yeah. It's being able to understand intimately their present situation and how it's impacting them personally, how it's impacting them financially and non-financially. And without that type of emotional intelligence, no sale or business success is possible. If you can't make a sale, business fails. Yeah, and whether and that's all- selling a legal product or service or whether it's in, in a negotiation um, or whether it's persuading a member of your team to do something, you're making a sale, aren't you? Absolutely. It, it, you know, it's the transfer of an idea. And as a leader or a business owner, if you can't read the emotional makeup of your people, if you can't understand where they're coming from, if you can't understand their thought process and the emotions that are present, it's impossible to communicate your ideas. Sure. So empathy is absolutely critical. We, we call it emotional intelligence. We've known about it for years. We used to call it street smart, yeah, but now yeah. we've just labelled it and measured it. Yeah. So if somebody wants to improve their emotional intelligence, because um, you said it's fluid, so you can presumably work on it, you can develop it, that will increase your effectiveness, effectiveness in sales and in persuasion. Mm. So where would they start? What were the things that they need to look at? The, the Greeks have been saying this for thousands of years, and they call it know thyself. Okay. About 36% of the population can catch the thoughts and the feelings that they're experiencing at any given time. So the place to start improving your emotional intelligence is starting with Mm self-awareness. And you've got to understand why you think and feel the way that you do. One of my clients today, she called me up, incredibly successful, multi-million dollar business. And she said, Daniel, I've got this fear of rejection. 
is she says, I don't know where it's coming from. I haven't experienced it for a long time. See, some personality styles are more susceptible to the fear of rejection and others are more susceptible to making a mistake and they have a fear of making a mistake. Other people fear failure where other people just are so worried about people leaving them. So with your personality style, you've got to understand what your style is. You've got to understand the emotions that are present that help you become more successful. For me, aggression and anger are actually strong emotional drivers for me. And I can't let the negative effects of those emotions hold me back. I have to use them to propel me forward. Okay. Other people that have fears of making mistakes. Now, that fear of making a mistake is also what makes them very successful in their role because they help other people making mistakes. So you've got to understand your personality style, which is critical in emotional intelligence. So um, you mentioned there that key sort of drivers and motivators for you in the past have been aggression and anger. Presumably in your sporting career, you learned that was a a massively powerful asset for you and you learned how to channel that. Mm. Um, And you honed that for many many, many hours on the border. But for those in business that might get frustrated, who might be competitive, who might find themselves experiencing feelings of aggression and anger, how can they channel it in in a productive way? Well, one thing with anger is why most people don't succeed is because they don't get angry enough. They don't get frustrated with where they're at. And in emotional intelligence, the, the third pillar of emotional intelligence is motivation. And the unfortunate part about living in the UK or Australia or America is our middle class is so big. And the majority of people can live a very nice life without having to try very hard whatsoever. So the comfort zone is so big that people, they go, you know what, I don't really like my job, but I don't hate it. So what happens is they get stuck in this rut and it's still good enough, and they get rewarded for underperformance. So I say before uh, people start to really move out of that comfort zone, they've got to get really frustrated. They got really angry about not hitting their goals. So when you look at your goal and you fall short, you've got to use that emotion of anger to move you forward. You've got to feel frustrated that you've had to go without. And so that's the main thing. So as people are becoming more successful, we talk about the four Ds. You've got to have desire. So you've firstly got to understand what you want and you have to have a burning desire to get that. That's the first D. The second D is after you know what you want and you've got that desire, you have to make a decision. And when we make a decision, we have to burn our mental bridges. We don't burn the physical bridges. We don't burn people. We burn the mental bridges. And we say, I refuse to go back to doing what I was doing. I was sick and tired of that, of feeling that way. I'm never going back to that ever again. But you've got to make the decision. The third part is determination. And most people start, but they never see things through to the end. And that's a major problem. Uh, according to Napoleon Hill, the majority of people give up on their goals before the very first attempt. So when you get that frustration, you've got to use it to move forward to get yourself back up. There's an old Japanese proverb fall down eight times, get back up nine times. So you've got to have the determination to start things and finish it and see it all the way through to the end. And then the fourth D, which you must have 
for success, and if this is not present, you'll never succeed, is discipline. And you have to be willing to do what is hard. And like Les Brown says, if you do what is hard, life will be easy. But if you do what is easy, life will be very hard to you. And in some of the latest and best researchers coming out of the University of Sydney is that uh, most people who get what they want get very angry. And a lot of people are spending time in therapy to try to get rid of this anger. What they should use it is in a different direction to propel them forward. Right. So you've got to have those four Ds and you've got to put it in the right place. So desire, decision, determination, and then discipline. Discipline. They're the four Ds of success. Without that, nothing's possible. Right. So of uh, for danger of oversimplifying it, of, the four, of those four Ds, this is a one area where you find most people need to pay attention to. Desire. Right. I, I give my clients a task. And um, this this task is worth $52,000. I, I know it because I have a text message here. What happens is with desire, we have to have reasons for success. And most people have a reason why they want something. But most people don't have enough reasons to get that thing. And we call these reasons fuel in the tank. Mm-hmm. So what I do with my clients, when they start with me, I tell them, you have to write down a hundred reasons why you must succeed. Yeah. And they go, that's a lot of reasons. And I'll say, well, you're going to fail a lot. So you need more reasons to get back up. Yeah. And then I also tell them you have to have a hundred reasons why you must not fail. So with human motivation, we're motivated towards what we want, the carrot, and we're also motivated away from what we don't want, which is the stick. And most people don't know what they're motivated by. So some people who are motivated by loss or fear, they need to have these reasons why they must not fear, uh, why they must not fail. So when I give my clients this task, 100 reasons to succeed and 100 reasons why they must not fail, they start to understand the true reasons why they want thing, that, that true desire. And I had a young guy this week, 19 years of age. He had his first one-hour coaching session. He went out and he wrote down his 100 reasons why he must succeed. He wrote down 100 reasons why he must not fail. And then by Friday of last week, he sent me a message and he said, I've just closed a $52,000 deal. Wow. He'd never done it before, but he had so much desire because he knows his true reasons why he must succeed and why he must not fail. And that's a 19-year-old. So if he can do it and he can't even grow a beard yet, (laughs) anybody can do it. So, yeah, 19-year-old closing a $52,000 deal. Yeah. Yeah. And he's only ever going to grow um, grow in leaps and bounds from that place now. A hundred percent. So you, he's got, he's got desire. So he wants it. He's got a burning desire. So you build, you, you get that flame roaring enough. Uh, and then I think the decision bit probably becomes very easily after with that level of desire. Um, Interesting thing there, Gavin, is, a motivation as a driving force has a motivational force of 1.0 in terms of power. But the fear of loss, the fear of missing out, has a driving force of 2.5. Fear is such a, such a strong motivating force. Right. And so when you know it, what happens is you don't have to wait till somebody takes something from you. All your reasons are inside of you. So it's just automatically you start to get fired up because you've thought it through. Yeah. 
So yeah, very I'm very familiar with the concept of a towards and away from motivating, but that mm-hmm. distinction there that I had not heard is that the impact of uh, the away from motiva- motivation, moving away from what you do not want, why you must not fail, is two and a half times stronger than the moving towards the goals that you do want. And so when we we all know this carrot and the stick, sure. And some people think they're they're just a carrot person, yeah. But the reality, we're both. And if we have looked at the most successful people in the world, they have an equal balance of towards and away from because. What happens is once you get far enough away from the pain, mm-hmm. that doesn't propel you forward. That only gets you away from the pain. Yes. So you've got to have the desire and the carrot. So you start to turn and then focus on what you want. Great. Because this also becomes very suggestible to the unconscious mind. If you keep focusing on what you don't want, mm-hmm. the mental law of attraction and the mental law uh-huh. of mental equivalency uh-huh. kicks in and you become what you think about most of the time. So if you keep focusing on that fear, eventually you attract that. So you've got to get away from it and then you've got to get clarity on your goal. And this is when your reticular activation system kicks in. And the reticular activation system locks on to your most dominant thought, that thing that you want out in the future, and it becomes like a heat-seeking missile and you just remain laser-focused. Mm-hmm. But you've got to move away from the, from the old and you've got to focus on the new. Yeah. These are all psychological principles that have been around for 6,000 years. Yeah, fantastic. And we're just rediscovering them now. Like in periods of uncertainty, you need to look for the certainty that is in your business and around you. And you also need to look for the opportunities where you can possibly pivot, how you can minimize risk and downside, and actually how importantly you can survive and thrive through testing and challenging times. I help people do this all day long in terms of my business. And indeed, in next month, I've got a, a book coming out in, with that very title, Survive and Thrive full of case studies and stories of how I've done that. But if you're feeling that actually you could do a dose of what do I need to do now to survive and then thrive, then do get in touch and I'll be able to help get you and your business to navigate the best course through potentially stormy waters to get to the point of uh, thriving and making a difference to the customer base and potential future customers that you serve. Drop me an email, gavin at gavinpreston.com. We'll jump on a call and find out how I can help you. So that's gavin at gavinpreston.com. So with that burning desire... The decision bit follows, uh, and imagine that it fuels the determination. I think discipline is an area that um, trips people up, isn't it? In inherently, there's seven things that drives all human behaviour, and it's called expedience. And humans are expedient by nature. And the first thing that all humans have in common is laziness. We're, we're very lazy, and people hear that and say, "Oh, Daniel, that's bullcrap." Let me ask you. What's more enjoyable to drive, a car with electric windows where you just press a button and the window goes down by itself, <laughs> or the old style where you've got to wind it up? Yeah, yeah. Laziness, we've come up with these inventions. What about cruise control? Mm. I used to drive from Sydney to northern Queensland to go wakeboarding on a Friday night, 800 kilometres. Wow. And I'll tell you what, the day that we got cruise control in our car, I never went back to yeah. driving a car with no cruise control. Yeah. Yeah. So we're all lazy and we're always looking and for an easier way to do things. But unfortunately, most humans, they get rewarded for their laziness. You go to work for 40 hours a week. It doesn't matter how bad you've done your job. It's almost impossible to get fired in Australia these days, as long as you show up. Mm -hmm. And at school, and it starts at school, Gavin, we are rewarded for poor performance. 
Uh, in Australia, we say P's equal degrees. Pass marks still get distinctions. So even if you just pass, you still get rewarded. And there is no difference between you and the high performer. Everybody gets the same certificate. So we're rewarded for laziness. And then when people start their own business, they have to break lifelong habits. Mm. And laziness is a habit. In my opinion, I think it's even a disease. (laughs) (laughs) So how do you help? How do you coach people to break that lifelong habit to overcome that disease and, and be disciplined or develop that discipline? Well, the law of incremental improvement is ultimately important here. And with emotional intelligence, I talk about the comfort zone. And our body temperature, we'll just say, is set at around about 37 degrees. Maybe a point here and point there different. But this is called homeostasis. It's the temperature of the body. Mm -hmm. What happens is if our temperature goes up by 10% and it goes from 37 to 41, we go into what's called a hyperprexic state and the body starts to cook itself. And what we naturally do, we put cold packs, we put uh, lukewarm water on ourselves to bring our body back down to 37 degrees, back into homeostasis, back into the comfort zone. Yep. If the body temperature drops by 10%, it goes into a hypothermic state and the body freezes. And what we try to do is we try to warm it back up, but only to the comfort zone, 37 degrees. So the first thing that people have to be mindful of is that if you want to make a change, you've got to move from what we call your comfort zone and we've got to go through discomfort Mm -hmm. until you get to your new level of success. But as soon as you start to move out of your comfort zone by 10%, as soon as you start to earn 10% more, what happens is you start to go into self-sabotaging behavior. People set the goal to increase their income. All of a sudden, they got this extra money and they didn't set goals for what they'll do with the money. So they start to spend it. They start to spend the extra money. And all of a sudden, they're earning, a, they were earning, let's call it $100,000. Now they're earning $110,000. They got an extra 10 grand of cash. Mm-hmm. And they spend, and what they find is that their expenses rise to meet their new income. Sure. With the studies, most people who were, when they were 18 and got their first job, have the same financial problems. 20 years later when they're earning twice as much in their full-time career. So knowing human psychology, what we have to do is we have to incrementally increase their level of success. And so what happens is they don't go into sabotaging behaviors and you have to retrain success habits as they slowly move up. Look, you can double your income in 30 days. You can triple it in 30 days. But what happens is you're so far out of your comfort zone, most people freak out and they go back into the comfort zone. So inch by inch, it's a cinch. By the yard, it's hard. So how do you change it? Just one habit, $1 million habit at a time. And what would be a good start in terms of the first habit for people to look at? Well, unfortunately, 97% of the population don't have goals. (laughs) So true. And 85% of our motivation comes from the uh, the expected outcome of our behaviours for the Mm. future. So what we know, and this has been proven since the 70s by Mark McCormack in his book, uh, What They Don't Teach You at Harvard, is set a goal. As soon as you set a goal, three things happen. As soon as you set a goal, your body gets a dopamine rush. And this is a neurotransmitter. It comes from the brain. It floods the body. And all of a sudden, it's like you're focused, you're aware, you're alive. Everything becomes brighter and you get excited. Hmm. So dopamine is released from the brain. And as you start to move towards that goal, you start to get adrenaline in your body. 
it's like you've got this big goal, you're David, there's Goliath, and you're ready for the fight. And you start to move towards this goal, you're excited, obstacles come up, you don't care because the, the heart's pumping. And all of a sudden, once you have just the smallest little win, you experience success and you start to smile. And when the lip curls up and the eyes rise up, the brain releases serotonin. Mm-hmm. And these three things are nature's happy drugs. And with dopamine, with adrenaline, and with serotonin, it is impossible to feel depressed Mm. and you'll feel invincible. And what will happen is you'll get an objection, you'll get a little bit of rejection, you'll say, I feel like Superman, I don't care, and you'll keep moving forward. So if you just start to write your goals down, set your goals, write them down, you'll be doing what 97% of the other population are not doing. Sure. I have never met a successful person who does not have goals and I've never met a failure who's had goals. Yeah. And so just yeah. do what other successful people are doing, and eventually with practice you'll get the same result. You obviously achieved a, a pinnacle of success early in your life in terms of your sporting um, career. Um, for some people, uh, once you have achieved that success, the discipline can fall back. You can get a little bit um, sort of complacent where you are. How, what did you find kept you keen and sharp? Was it always the competition that was chasing at your heels or or what what was it that worked to keep the discipline there and keeping you sharp? Probably stupidity. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) When I went to school, um, I had learning disabilities and I was always told that I was stupid. So when I set my goals for sports, people would say, oh, you'll never achieve that. But, you know, the smart part of stupidity is just you stop listening to people. So I just didn't listen to people and I set a goal and my reticular activation system just got hooked on to becoming the Australian champion. And it was like an obsession. And it took me 10 years to achieve that goal. There was two major knee reconstructions, broken arms, plates in my arms, broken noses, torn ligaments. And I just kept going until I got what I wanted. And so those four things were present. The desire was there. I was very clear on why I wanted it. I'd made the decision that I would get it and nothing would stop me. I had the determination because every time I had a setback, I got back up on the board, but I also had the discipline. And the discipline here was incredibly important because in my sport of wakeboarding, it was very easy to become good fast. Okay. And so you could go out there and you could learn high-level tricks without learning the basics, but it only seemed to get most people two or three years into the sport. Okay. So what I mean by this is when I started, I learned by jumping the wake, Mm -hmm. and then I learned how to do it coming back the other way. These are basics, and people hate the basics. Then I learned to do a 180 this way and a 180 the other way. Yeah. Whilst I was focusing on the foundations, other people were coming in and doing a flip and a twist. Okay. But unfortunate thing for them was they did a flip and a twist, but they could not do a 180 to get them back in the right direction. Okay. And so they were doing these hard tricks that were worth 1,000 points, and I was practicing these tricks that were worth 150 points. Right. But ultimately, over time, my foundations were so solid that as I started to layer on harder tricks, nobody could compete with me. And I was doing tricks that nobody else was doing at that time. And they just couldn't compete. I wasn't competing against them. I was competing against myself. But they couldn't do the basics. So they were always held back. Yeah. You had such a strong foundation. And it's the discipline. 
to do those things that are boring. It's like in sales, um, the top sales companies around the world, they spend 80% of their time face-to-face selling, where companies that are failing spend 11% of their time selling. Mm. And the hardest part of selling is prospecting and finding new people to speak to because you've got to go through rejection. Mm -hmm. But the top companies say a part of success is failure and a prerequisite is speaking to a lot of people who are going to say no. And if you speak to a lot of people who say no, you'll eventually find a lot of people who will say yes. But it takes discipline to do that. And most people just want to fast track past that. Just give me the leads. Somebody else can deal with the rejection, but it doesn't work like that. So... um Back to the point around um, emotional intelligence, we've said there's four Ds, desire, decision, determination, and discipline. Mm-hmm. Are, are there any other things that uh, you find, uh, from an emotional intelligence point of view, are absolutely invaluable to help achieve success? There's five key pillars of emotional intelligence. The first one is self-awareness. Yeah. You've got to understand why you think and feel the way that you do. You've got to understand your strengths and your weaknesses. And we live in a society that says, just focus on your strengths, forget about your weaknesses. That's a load of bullcrap. If you're driving a motor vehicle and it has four tires, I don't care how good a driver you are. If one of those tires is flat, that vehicle is not going to perform at its best. I don't care how good your affirmations are. I don't care if you've got (laughs) rid of all your negative emotions and mental blocks. I don't care if you wrote your goals in the morning. If you've got four tires on your car and one is flat, that vehicle won't perform. Yeah. And you have to learn to deal with it. You've got to pull over, you've got to get the tire replaced. Sure. So that's really important. The second part of emotional intelligence is self-regulation. And this is being able to manage your mental and emotional blockages. And I have a friend, he trains uh, in the psychology of coaching. And he said that there are reports out there today that demonstrate there is no link between feeling good and being a high performer. He says, because there's a lot of high performers out there who are drunk, they've lost their families, they're doing drugs, and they're still getting huge results. So what we have to do is we have to learn to manage our emotions. We have to still be able to achieve our daily activities and actions even when we're feeling bad. And that's a key principle to success. If you've lost everything, if your family's falling apart, you have to be able to manage your emotion You have to be able to manage your thoughts and you have to be able to take those daily actions that eventually get you your outcomes. And that's getting back to what I said about Les Brown before. You've got to do what is hard. And that's the important and the most important part about self-regulation is managing your thoughts and feelings. The third area is motivation. This is the third pillar of emotional intelligence. And motivation, I have never met somebody who's lost a job for having too much motivation. I've never met somebody who's lost a client because they're too motivated. What happens is people run out of motivation. They slacken off. And what happens in emotional intelligence, most people don't have the energy to pursue their goals. They hit an obstacle, they hit an objection, and they give up. And Neil Eidingale said, you know, 30, maybe 40 or 50 years ago, the, the average person gives up on their goal before their very first attempt. Yeah, yeah. But we know if we tie it back into sales, 80% of sales are made after the 15th attempt to close the sale. Mm. So you've got to be able to be motivated to keep asking whilst you're getting those no's, to keep finding a way to get the customer to buy when they say no at the start. Right. And that's motivation. Yeah. 
The fourth pillar of emotional intelligence is empathy. And empathy is the ability to read other people's emotional makeup. And if you can't read their emotional makeup, you'll have conflict after conflict after conflict. So you've got to get good at reading other people's mental and emotional makeup. If you can't read them, you can't have clients, you can't have team members. So you've got to have high levels of empathy. And we say that today, empathy contributes about 85% of your success in sales. If you can't read the client, it doesn't matter how good your product and service is, they'll never buy it because you don't understand them. And people say, I feel that this person understands me. And if a customer says that, they'll buy from you. But nobody ever buys from a salesperson who they say, oh, this person doesn't get me. They walk away. Mm. And then the final part is uh, what we call social regulation. And this is communication. And if you can't get your message across, people won't buy from you. And in my opinion, and this is backed by research coming out of Harvard University, is about 99% of the mistakes that we make in business today are based on communication errors. And that is not because I've made a communication error. It is also because the other person hasn't heard me properly. And just because we can hear, it doesn't mean we can listen. So when we communicate, we're going to be very clear and concise with our message. But the person who's listening and receiving the information has to make sure that they've got clean filters and they don't let their own perceptions change the information that's coming in. So if you can learn to be a master communicator, if you can be, learn to be persuasive, but you've also got very clear filters for listening, ultimately you'll succeed faster than anybody else. And these are all skills and it's all attitude. Emotional intelligence is attitude and the people don't lose jobs because of positive attitudes. <laughs> they get hired for skill and they get fired for attitude. But today, attitude is the most important thing. So one thing I find uh, I encounter with clients of mine is that they've been in employing the 4Ds, getting great results, achieving a lot, and then they get to a point of, of overwhelm um, because a lot of good stuff's happening. And then there's there's uh, that the that success generates more activity. That activity load goes up. They may not be as adept at sort of delegation, but what do you find works really well helping somebody when they're in a place of succeeding, but they're they're at an overwhelm and they're they're almost at a point of self sabotaging to get out of overwhelm. Well, things you've got to make sure that your goals are your goals, and people are setting goals today. And they don't really understand why they set the goals. I remember it was nine, I was 19, it was 1999. My uncle said to me, Daniel, come and learn how to sell real estate. He said, come and learn to sell real estate. If you, if you get in the top uh, 10 sales creators in Australia in the first uh, six months, I'll promote you to sales, but you've got to buy a house before you start to sell because you, under, you have to understand empathy, the, the sales process and the stress of buying the house as well. So he set these goals for me. I achieved them. But in the back of my mind, all I wanted to do was chase women <laughs> and go wakeboarding. And, go and I'm yeah, going to the office every day wearing a tie, selling real estate, working with 40-year-olds. And all I can think about is women and going wakeboarding. <laughs> and I found out I was getting very stressed. I was getting these incredible results, but I was working all the time. Yeah. And I just wanted to be out with my mates doing wakeboarding. And the more success that I got in real estate, the more unfulfilled I felt in my own personal life. And at that stage, uh, somebody else gave me a goal. It wasn't my goal, and I pursued it. I bought my first home at 19. 
but it was more stressful than enjoyable. Mm. I bought my second house at age 21 and I've got, you know, close to you know, maybe $400,000 back then in debts. And I thought I should feel successful, but I didn't. Right. And I was doing things that I really didn't want to do. So I packed my bag and I came to the UK okay. in 2002. And I took a job working with my mate in a bar. I went backpacking and I was actually incredibly happy just traveling by myself. And what I realized was that the goals I achieved were somebody else's goals. They were a set of goals that I probably should have set at age 40, not at 20. So how I dealt with the overwhelmed, I just escaped. Right. And that's not effective. So what I'd be doing, knowing what I now know, if I was to do a quink analysis, I'd go back and make sure that the goals that I've set are actually what I want. And normally, if we're setting goals and we're achieving things and we don't want them, we will feel incredibly overwhelmed. So it's getting back to a source of values. What's important to me here? What do I want? Is this my goal? And if it is, I've got to be congruent about it. And congruency, I call it all systems go. The goal has to be good for you. Mm -hmm. The goal has to be good for your family. The goal has to be good for the business community, and it has to be good for the planet. And see, those goals at the start, the goal wasn't good for me. It wasn't the right thing. I should have been chasing the girls, and I should have been wakeboarding. I shouldn't have sacrificed that. Uh, It was good for the business. It was good for the family because the family said, you know what, we need to settle Daniel down. <laughs> Let's get him locked into a property and chill him out so he doesn't chase the girls. Uh, it was good for the business, but overall it wasn't good for the planet. And mm. I like to make contributions, whether it to be my sport or my, or, or my backyard. But owning a house, it just gave me a stressful personality and I, I wouldn't have been a nice person to be around. My girlfriend at the time would have thought I must have been – an asshole because I was always focused on work and I was stressed. So coming back to a source of values and make sure it's the right thing for you. Great. And then so once you've locked back onto a goal that's right for you, um, that helps to address some of the overwhelm because presumably if you've gone off course and you realign to your goal, then there becomes the excitement and the determination kicks in to uh, address, well, the the overwhelm just disappears or, or it starts to dissolve. Well, the first thing I found was I stopped watching the clock. I found when I had goals that weren't in alignment for me, I was just watching the minutes and hours tick away. I'd be like, please just get to five o'clock. Eight hours of slavery, I can escape. But today, you know, it's 8.25 p.m. here in Taiwan, and I would do a podcast every night till 12 o'clock because I'm talking about things that I love. And the difference is when you're doing something that you, you love, you get peace of mind. And the number one thing everybody wants is peace of mind. The number one thing that everybody wants is to feel good. Mm -hmm. But so many of us are doing things that don't make us feel good. That's why I live in Taiwan. It makes me feel good. I used to live in Dubai. I I was there because it used to make me feel good. I love Australia, but I don't feel good living there. I want to live here. So I set up my life based on what makes me feel good. And, that, and that's the true test. Do you feel good? Yes, we'll do it. If you don't, the, have you heard of the, the the Hoonas of Hawaii? No, no, go on, take detail. The Hoonas of Hawaii, they live by a very simple code. If you eat it and it makes you feel good, then eat more of it. If you eat it and it makes you feel bad, stop eating it. If you do it and it feels good, keep doing it. If you do something that makes you feel bad, stop doing it. And this is emotional intelligence. It's also tuning back into yeah. ourselves. 
and asking ourselves the question, is this right for me? Yeah, yeah. It's so simple and profoundly powerful. Um, I'd love you to share a little bit about the culture in Taiwan you shared with me just before we started to record and uh, in terms of the community around neighbours and, and and what it's like for your children to grow up in that in, in that culture. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll draw the opposite. So in, in Australia, uh, we're an individualistic society. So in Australia, when I grew up, um, if my friends were over and it was coming up six o'clock, mum would say, send them home. We can't afford to feed them. <laughs> in Australia, if you go to your mate's house for a barbecue, you bring your own food. Yeah. If you go to your mate's house for a birthday bash, you take your own beers. Yeah. And if you take 12 beers and you only drink six, yeah. you take the other six home. Yeah. Where The opposite is true in the Middle East and here in Taiwan. So we live in a communal society and we have 26,000 head of population per square kilometre. In Australia, it's 600 per square kilometre. Wow. So here you have to share everything. Yeah. And when I go downstairs of my apartment block and I see the children, I don't say, Gavin, that's your child. When I address the child, I'll say, uh, ni hao mei mei, which ni hao mei mei means hello, little sister. So I address wow. the girl as my little sister. Wow. If there's somebody who's slightly older than me, maybe you're a little bit older than me, for example, I'll call you Gerga, older brother. Wow. Yeah, yeah. If you're the uh, gentleman who's serving me food and you're significantly older, I'll call you Shushu, which is uncle. So we still have this culture where we're including everybody. The little girl is my sister. The little boy is my brother. I don't look at him as your child. Yeah. It's part of the community. So when I go down to the park, all the dads and the mums are playing with everybody else's children. Amazing. My children are playing with your ball, and it's not as if, hey, that's my ball. <laughs> it's our ball. This, yeah. this is this is our park. Yeah. You go to a restaurant and there's 30 seats. If I'm sitting here, yeah. somebody won't sit on the other side of the restaurant because it's communal. They'll just come and sit themselves right next to me. Really? Wow. And, and it's an incredible place. 95% um, of the population is Buddhist and about 99% of the population is Taiwanese. So it's it's one culture, it's one understanding, and it's very spiritual. So uh, I said to my wife the other day, I said, let's go over and pray to this Buddha. And she said, oh, you can't pray to that Buddha. <laughs> I said, why not? She says, because this, this Buddha looks after the people of this community. We've got to go back and we've got to pray to our Buddha because uh, he looks after our community. Wow. So you've got these thousand different gods and I have this chicken that's at my front door and it's this golden chicken. It's got golden eggs and this this golden chicken brings us wealth. And uh, because of feng shui, it's got to be in the right place. And the other day, my wife said to me, I've got to take the chicken home. I said, where are you taking it? She said, I've got to take it to the middle of Taiwan. So she took this golden chicken in the glass box and her and uh, her cousin drove two and a half hours down into the mountains in the middle of Taiwan to take the chicken back to the Buddha, gave the Buddha a blessing. We paid back the money that we borrowed from the Buddha to um, uh, start our business. We borrowed some more. It's all part of the spiritual nature. We got the blessing for the chicken and she brought the chicken home and it sits at the front door again. Amazing. So this, this whole spiritual world and uh, we pray for our clients. So my wife will be down praying for the clients. I'll be working with them. She'll be praying for them. We'll go light a candle, and this represents success for our clients. So we are very spiritual here. Wow. We are very spiritual. 
And this is something that I've never found anywhere else in the world. And uh, like I said before, I do what makes me happy and it makes me feel really happy. Oh, Daniel, what a real joy to have an insight into the culture there, but also to learn more from you uh, around emotional intelligence, the four Ds of desire, decision, determination, and discipline, and the five pillars of emotional intelligence of self-awareness, self-regulation, motivation, empathy, and social regulation. If people want to find out more about you, what you do, your coaching, etc., how do they do that? Out of my website, danieltolson.com. Uh, join my, on my website. There's a bunch of free resources there. You can download my latest book, which is called Win Sales Now. Uh, my wife and I also have uh, daily podcasts on Facebook. So just type in Daniel Tolson into Facebook. You'll find me. And uh, we've got two podcasts, one called Win Sales Now, and that's all about business and sales success. But the other one, which is ultimately important, is called Mental Detox. And this is where we're talking about the secrets to stop self-sabotage. And I believe that if we can just deal with our mental and emotional blockages and then work on our business, we'll be far more successful. And so that's Mental Detox, and that's a great podcast. Fantastic. Daniel, thank you so much for your time this evening and uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you, Gavin, and uh, thank you for inviting me on. It's a great pleasure. My pleasure. You've been listening to the Business Mastermind Podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate and review so that more people like you can get their business back on their own terms, enjoy more success and create more impact.